Good day and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Harry. And for today's episode, we continue this little Hitchcock trilogy of films I've been doing during season six with one of his most experimental films of his career. In terms of being behind the camera, editing and long singular takes and the narrative itself. So for episode 53, I'll be talking about 1948 crime drama Rope. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock and based on the play by Patrick Hamilton and starring James Stewart, Dick Hogan, John Dahl and Joan Chandler. Alfred Hitchcock's first film in colour, bringing that vibrant tone to his bleak stories that unravel to the naked eye in a very suspenseful way he is known to do with all of his films with his nickname The Master of Suspense. But for Rope... He tried something different with the same genre to attempt to do a film all in one take. In fact, the illusion of the film being all in one take. There are actually 10 shots within this film, an actual fact, but hidden by invisible cuts that make it appear that the whole film is done in one shot. To give you content about this, your average trailer, which is about what 90 seconds long, has over 100 cuts. This entire film has 10 cuts in 80 minutes and they're all hidden. It was the first commercial film to do this. I think only 10 other films have done this where they've hidden cuts to appear that the film has been done in one shot. I mean, there's a Mexican film called Homework, really great film. The French film Irreversible, which is also told backwards. And of course, most recently, 1917, directed by Sam Mendes, who is a really big fan of Alfred Hitchcock, has the hidden illusion of being done in one single take. There are only a few films that are done truly with one shot with no cuts whatsoever. I think Andy Warhol's first film, well, not his first film, but the first film to do it was Empire. Um, and it was the first film truly to do a film, uh, for one in one entire take. And that was back in 1964. But there have been a few others like The Wedding Party, Woody Harrison's Lost in London, the Iranian film Invasion. So it's been done legitimately with the illusion of it being done in one take, but uh, it's also been done like, uh, the illusion of one take like in 1917 and irreversible to say it simply though the basically i mean this film rope has 10 long takes that we can't see that's basically what it is so the cuts range from 4 minutes 37 to well over 10 minutes which is actually the maximum amount of film uh it can hold back in the late 40s i think is that the camera magazine or the projector reel could hold a maximum of 10 minutes of footage so they didn't really have a choice with that i think the average length shot for the whole movie is about 450 seconds. I think if Alfred Hitchcock was alive today and did a film like that today, he'd have done it all in one continuous shot. Um, but yes, he has a very, he's been known for having experimental tendencies with his film. I mean, Rope is one classic example. Of course, we don't need to delve about Psycho, Vertigo, Strangers on Train in terms of narrative. The one take in this film, the revolutionary stereoscopic methods he used for Dial M for Murder, which is filming the film in a 3D format. So you can see he has, uh, you know, used these sort of experiments in other films. Um, so basically with um, Dial M for Murder, he used a 3D format to shoot it. And that was one of the first films to do it like that. They re-released Dial M for Murder in 1980 on that format. But I think Hitchcock intended to shoot the movie flat, which means not in 3D, even though he did experiment during the filming of Dial M for Murder. It was also one of the first to shoot with Predominantly one location, which I mentioned in an earlier podcast in Rear Window. This movie doesn't allow the camera to go past the window from Jimmy Stewart's vantage point. We, as the audience, are confined in his one apartment. Another thing Hitchcock has done that turned out to be quite unconventional at the time, yet revolutionary and um, followed in other people's footsteps in the future. The invisible cuts in this movie are quite 
not so hidden in the uh, the general aspect of the film. I mean, they use very old methods. I mean, this film was done in 1948, so it's not all bad. At the time, it was quite um, revolutionary, but they would hide the invisible cuts just by having the camera zoom into a dark, dark object, totally blacken out the lens, and then zooming out, and that would be the next cut. I mean, there are other cuts in rope that are a little more complicated to achieve, especially in 1948 that Hitchcock played around with. So the film's shot entirely in one studio, much like Rear Window was. I think everything besides the opening credits um, happens in that one studio or in that apartment. Over the course of the movie, you actually get to see all the four walls or sides of the apartment, which offers a better understanding of where the chest is throughout the whole movie, which is sort of the premise of the whole movie. Um, So the actors had to be very careful with um, shooting these scenes for this movie, not only with their lines or making mistakes for the long takes that Hitchcock made them do, but for the cables hidden on the floor for the lighting of the movie, making sure they didn't trip over it, causing a light to turn off or just reposition a light by accident. So they shot one segment per day, so naturally the film took 10 days. Apparently the last four or five segments had to com- had to be completely reshot because Hitchcock wasn't happy with the colours of the sunset outside. I mean, it wasn't actually outside, it was just clever lighting that made it appear that way. So the clouds that you see outside are made of fiberglass, apparently, and the sirens at the end of the movie as well, quite explanatory, really. It's uh, just achieved by an ambulance driving up to the studio and angling the lights towards the shot. Of course, since no one really attempted to shoot like this, the filming times were quite long and everybody on set obviously tried to avoid any mistakes. There is a point in the movie where the camera dolly, which is like a train track, ran over and broke a cameraman's poor foot, God help him, during one of the long takes um, of the movie. And someone had to grab and gag him like some kind of notorious spy before he could scream or ruin the shot. And there was another instance, according to an interview, where a woman puts her glass down. She was in the crew and she missed the table, and it was about to smash, but luckily someone on the crew caught it before it hit the ground. Both of those instances, when those incidents happen, those actual cuts are in the final cut of the movie. The movie, like I said earlier, lasts only 80 minutes, which is fairly short for a Hollywood movie, but the idea is that rope is played during real time, but in fact, the diegetic world of the movie actually covers a time frame of over two hours. I mean, to accomplish that, they simply sped the actions, like the dinner scene table, which only lasts 20 minutes. Notice how the sunset really quickly sets, and there are other little things you can notice that in rope that really speeds up the time in a subtle way, kind of like how they did in Lost in London, where he's alone in the cell and the morning arrives really quickly just to speed up the narrative. Same thing in 1917 when he's with that woman and a baby. That scene is like 15 minutes, but it lasts a whole night because of when he leaves. It's morning, so they needed to get the continuity keep going. They just use the lighting to make sure it's daytime. And this is what I mean by how ahead of time and forward-thinking Hitchcock really was with his experimental ideas of filmmaking. The long takes, the continuous one-shots that Tarantino uses, Sam Mendes uses, the perspective of being in one place in Rear Window, which again many other artists use in their films like Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs, M. Night Shyamalan in Old. I mean, he is he's clearly inspired many great artists to follow in his footsteps. The inspiration for this film, uh, of well, not this film, but for doing it in one take was from the BBC version of Rope in 1939. So the producer of that program decided to do it like that so they could keep the chess constantly in shot so Hitchcock said in a magazine interview that he didn't do it to experiment but simply has a stunt just to see if it would work 
The original story is actually a Broadway play. It was called Rope's End, which opened in 1929, I think. And it's um, at what is now called the John Golden Theatre in London. And it ran for exactly 100 shows. So they changed the story a little bit for the film with the introduction of certain characters. But the film, I mean, its aim was to do was to make it seem like a stage play. And that's exactly how it looks. Any films delving with the idea of doing a film in real time has that notion that it's done in the format of a stage play. I mean, like like Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, where there are three 40-minute segments all playing out in real time. However, with this movie, it's all set in one apartment, so this does replicate a stage play more than a, you know, more than a Broadway show does. So it actually replicates more of a West End or Broadway show than Steve Jobs would, for instance. In fact, it was one of the most frequent questions asked Alfred Hitchcock when he was doing interviews for this film, and he got quite fed up with them because, you know, he just he just he, and he, he just hated reporters. He never really did any interviews, and never usually hid his distaste for the questions regarding the long takes in the movie. I mean, it hadn't really been done before this, so you can't really complain about the interviewer's curiosity about why he liked shooting a film like that. And they kept asking him, like, why would he? Why would you do a film like that? Um, and he would, uh, you know, he, I don't think he ever changed his answer with that. So if you haven't seen Rope, I'll quickly go into the main plot of the movie. Uh, the plot of the movie is actually inspired by Leopold and Leb's murder back in the 20s, where they murdered one of their college roommates just for the thrill of it. So the two were actually lovers, and this is hinted in the movie that the two men are in fact homosexuals, and this caused quite a stir. And this film was actually banned in several American cities because of this implication. So the film is basically one big dinner party. We have John Dahl's character who is this creepy sociopath who thinks the world revolves around him, and he thinks he's superior to everyone around him, apart from his companion, played by Farley Granger, and his former teacher, James Stewart. So he admires their intellect. So these two guys, these two like college students, or I think they've graduated now, and you can picture the type, rich parents, spoiled, egotistic, so they decide to host a dinner party in honour of their friend David. However, they kill David right at the start of the movie. It's the first thing we see. He strangles them with a rope, which is why it's called Rope. And this happens just minutes into the movie. Um, and this also happens minutes before the guests arrive for a party for David. They're not terrorists or motivated by jealousy or hatred or any other common reason for murder, but simply it's more to prove that they can get away with this murder. The ego to host a dinner party with his, his dead body in the middle of the room inside the chest where they're going to serve food on top of. Their goal, and I guess motive, is to prove that they're intellectually superior and have the right to kill those that they regard as inferior. Now, killing isn't enough. They have to prove that they have committed the perfect murder. So the dinner party consists of all the victim's close friends and relatives who, during the course of the movie, become quite anxious about his absence. Now, not only that, because they think they have committed the perfect murder of all murders and they are, in fact, dying to gloat about it and show how smart they really are, they invite their old professor from university to the party to up the ante a little bit. Obviously, he's very suspicious and he his acts as a, you know... Anyone who shows the very ounce of suspicion acts as a sexual arousement to both Brandon and Phillips. I mean, this complex that these two men seem to possess is that of the Ubermensch, which is known as the Superman, which I believe Adolf Hitler strongly believed in when he was uh, in power in Germany. And it's because of these teachings of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche did, our, did, our, did Adolf Hitler do what he did. 
So the Superman or the Ubermensch basically states that a man in the future, an idealistic man, will rise above conventional Christianity law to create and rule his own values towards humanity. So if you truly want to become Ubermensch, you must create your own values, accept that you most likely will hurt people, accept suffering as a component of good things, accept and understand that you are different, and finally become devoted to Earth. So these two men in this movie share these traits. They even have a slight discussion about the theory with James Stewart in this movie. And for a film that was done only three years after World War II ended, it is a highly controversial piece of art done by Alfred Hitchcock. The thing that does strike me, though, is that wasn't the most controversial part when this movie came out. It was more the homosexuality. And and when I say homosexuality, the it was the implied homosexuality between the two murderers. You don't see anything or nothing happens. There's no, like, uh, there's no, nothing. They don't kiss. They don't even hug. It's just implied. So Hitchcock never really shied away from exploiting sexuality into his films. And he didn't really hold back for rope he wanted to play on the plots of homosexual undertones in this film there is even a subtle scene probably deliberate where philip just routinely plays on the piano and the piece he plays is a piece made famous by the composer being gay even for the casting as well which i was reading about hitchcock wanted montgomery cliff to play brandon and a rope who was known in hollywood for being gay and hitchcock also wanted Cary grant to play the other guy there were rumours about Cary Grant being gay, but apparently, according to the scriptwriter of the film, he was bisexual at best, and he, the scriptwriter, was also gay. They both turned down the roles, probably out of fear of being outed or stigmatised, leaving James Stewart to play the role of the professor. And James Stewart said he was massively miscast in this film, and always said in interviews, probably out of fear that people might have thought he was gay too. So during filming, everyone allegedly referred to homosexuality as it. Even with all the tiptoeing around it, rope is steeped in gay innuendo from the very first scene where Brandon and Philip murder their classmate, David Kentley. The strangulation is sexual and of itself as the instrument of choice. And after the fact that the two appear to be in a state of post bliss or confusion, having hidden the body in a trunk in otherwise plain view of the guest, they'll soon receive at a party in honor of their victim the entire film acts basically as a metaphor for homosexuality. You know, they share a secret, which is David's body, that they hope no one will find, yet somehow will get exposed. Brandon especially believes he and Philip are different, better than the rest of society by virtue of their intellect and cultural breeding. That, of course, may just be a code for homosexuality. During the reigns of the Hayes office, artists or lovers and intellects were often used as gay replacements based on the belief of their inherent superiority. Philip and Brandon assume the roles of society don't really apply to them. It's interesting enough, though, but the film almost exalts homosexuality being before demonizes it in it because Brandon and Philip purposefully learn these ideologies from their former headmaster, Cadell, played by James Stewart, who they invite as part of their little game of cat and mouse. And James Stewart was thus responsible for leading the boys astray, as it were. He sort of rectifies his mistake at the end by uncovering that Brandon and Philip's secret, but the damage is already done. The homicidal homosexuals will pay for their crime. But if the last image of the film is any indication, they don't regret what they've done or who they are. Of course, now times have changed. The controversial part of this movie is simply just the actions that they do, just for the thrill of the murder. Hitchcock, and I'll be very careful about how I word this, but he tends to really show sympathy towards the murderers in his movies. 
He shows a tad remorse for the murderous schemes that they usually have. He does this in Psycho, casting doubt to whether Anthony Perkins did it or not, even casting this young, handsome, tall young actor, where in actual fact, in the book, Norman Bates is fat and ugly. He sides with the murder in Rear Window as well, when he said in an interview that he was just going about his business and the famous scene at the end, he doesn't act malicious in any way, but instead asks Jimmy Stewart, what do you want me to do? Why are you doing this to me? showing that bit of empathy towards the killer. It seems Alfred Hitchcock is fascinated with the idea of murderers and even the perfect murder. In fact, this is one of three films in where the lead character are plotting to commit the perfect murder. The other two are Strangers on a Train and Dial M for Murder. But there is no denying the genius of this work and that of Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, it's been called the greatest, he's been called, sorry, the greatest director of all time by many publications. And in the 1001 movies to see before you die, he is the most represented director with 18 films in the book in the latest edition, including Rope, directing nine of the hundred films that American Film Institution considered the greatest heart pounding films of all time. And that also includes Rope. To add to that, he is also the most successful director in the top 250 IMDb list, with nine entries in there, more than any other director in history. And currently, which also includes Rope, I think rank, Rope is ranked number 242. So it's just staying in there at the moment. I think the highest ranked of his films is Rear Window, which is at 31, immediately followed by Psycho at 32. So... Rear, uh, not with Rear Window, sorry, um, with Rope, the film cost $1.3 million and James Stewart was paid a quarter of that, which is massive chunk for an actor. He doesn't even appear in the movie until like 20 to 25 minutes, which is pretty much a third of the way through the movie. The movie didn't gross more than $10,000 at the box office, completely failed to sell, mainly for controversial elements of the movie and the way it was shot. However, listening to the achievements Rope has you know roped in let's say since it came out it's safe to assume that the box office figures means nothing at all the film sits pretty in all major lists for positive mentions of great movies in the past century and a half i mean the movie itself was unbelievable i think it was one of the probably one of the best films i've seen that was made um you know you know, before the 1980s, because when I grew up, I was just watching films made in the 1980s, 1990s. I didn't really, I was too ignorant to even look at films done in the 70s, 60s or 50s. I just classified them as old. Maybe I'd watch Rocky in the 70s, but you know, that's it. But then once I watched a few of Hitchcock's films, Psycho, Rear Window, Rope, Strangers on the Plane, I was like, wow, there's some really good movies out there. And then my ignorance sort of just went away. And I've always had an open mind with films ever since then. And that happened luckily for me at such an early age. So I'm glad it's happened. A lot of people have that sort of you know assumptions about old movies about not being great but they are beautifully told and the stories are so good and i, I you know I, i'm it was, it's, we've sort of lost a step now we've progressed into technology and s- special effects and sequels and prequels but um with rope i mean the movie itself was actually unavailable for three decades because it's right together with four other of his movies of the same period were brought back by hitchcock's um by Hitchcock left as part of his legacy to his daughter Patricia Hitchcock they've been known as a long time for the infamous five lost Hitchcocks amongst movie buffs and were re-released in cinemas after 1984 that's a 30-year absence which explains why the film did so terribly at the box office as well because the film wasn't even available to watch I think the other films are Rear Window A Man Who Knew Too Much The Trouble with Harry and of course Vertigo which was um, the latest one 1958 I think but I think it's safe to assume that this film is influential, incredible, and foremost, it's inspirational in terms of filmmaking. Of course, 
the content of the movie. Well, listen, that's all I have time for with Rope. Um, one of the best films I think that Hitchcock has done in terms of experimental revolutionary films. But yes, please subscribe to me on Spotify, Google, and um, on iTunes as well. And you can also find me on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, all lowercase, all one word. And thank you again for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. Mm-hmm.